the episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. another episode of out of the shadows today we are in greenbelt maryland and i am here with Teresa, and donna is joining us by speakerphone so i hope that everyone out there in podcast land can hear her okay so i wanted to start first by just making a short little mention wednesday Gemma and i was going around baltimore and in the future coming weeks you'll hear some of the audio that we had recorded we recorded with some really great people. Uh, you'll hear from Joyce Malecki's family. We also plan on doing a future podcast with them to go a little bit more in depth, but they met with us and it was a, a very emotional meeting. You'll hear more connections between Kathy's case and Joyce coming up. We also met with some other important people. Uh, for example, Sharon Schmidt, and we recorded the entire time. So you'll be walking around with us and um, that, that'll be something that's going that's going to be coming up. A cool thing that I know if Gemma was here that she would also agree with me is we've done more than 20 episodes now that we've recorded and we continue to find new information and we continue to speak to new people who are coming out to tell their story. And so one of the first things that I wanted to talk about really quickly, at the very beginning or end of the podcast, what I would like to start doing is allowing survivors, whether they've come out or not, to vocally say i am a survivor so i set up a phone number the number is 812-727-4528 if you call the number it will go straight to voicemail we do not have the ability to look at who called and if you call all i want you to say is i am a survivor and i got the idea for this because many people reach out to me uh, whether it be facebook or email saying how because of the keepers they would like to come out to their family but they're struggling with it and i've i've also witnessed some people who say that they they have suddenly got the strength to do that and it was their time to do it so this will be a way for those who have said it to say it again and so people can keep it on their mind that there are survivors out there but also i would like to give an opportunity for those survivors who are not yet ready to tell their story and to speak about it the opportunity to say the words out loud. And so that's what you'll start hearing at the very beginning or end of the podcast. So again, the number is 812-727-4528. On Wednesday, we had met people for, for lunch. And I just wanted to share this quick story about kind of being in the life of a podcaster, I guess. We met people for lunch. And of course, I had no idea. We were in Lansdowne. But I had no idea we were where we were going. And we get there, and Gemma and I cold call people all the time, or we email them, which is always a very interesting thing because, hey, I have a question for you. I know this is going to sound super weird, but there was actually a funeral home across the street from where we were having lunch. And when I saw it, I was like, that name just sounds familiar, and I had to think about it. But actually, I had cold called the owner of it because we get tips all the time, and we had gotten this tip. So I was like, okay, I'll just call. So I call, and, and the funeral owner lady answered, and I was like, yeah, I have a really weird question. And she's like, okay. And I was like, around late 1960s, early 70s, could you hide a body there for a period of time without anyone knowing? And she was like, well, um, <clears throat> maybe, you know. And I was like, I promise this is not weird. But that was the place that I called, and so I was like, Gemma, we can't be seen. Like, I don't want that lady to, she'll recognize my voice. I know, I know she will. But that just goes to show, like, we are always cold calling people, and if we receive a tip, we follow up on it. And whether or not I call a funeral home one day and show up sometime soon for lunch across the street. Okay, so leading into this, Teresa's here with me today. Teresa will always hold a special place in my heart because... I've been a podcaster now for a little more than three years, 
And it was actually because of uh, one of my, it was actually my very first episode that I did on a, uh, a, a murder victim in Cleveland, Ohio, that I got connected and I heard about Kathy's case. I didn't know much about it. And when I first talked to someone over the phone, I really prefer not to know much just so I can ask questions. So I didn't know much. And Teresa's name was one of the first that I found while I was doing just a quick search for people to talk to. And this was prior to the keepers. And I remember calling, calling you and I was sitting on my couch. And then all of a sudden, Teresa tells me what happened to her. And I will never forget how I felt just sitting there like, what? And I think because of that, I wasn't expecting it. And Teresa is very vocal about her experience and her wanting for change. And that's something that I will always look up for her for doing that. Just because I can't imagine what you've had to gone through, like what you've gone through, and then to speak about it, and then to do something about it. Like, that's just amazing to me. Well, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that. What happened to me so long ago when I was just 16 um, has been with me my entire life. And I've often said that there is not a day that goes by that Father Maskell's name doesn't come into my head. I either read something about him or, or I just remember something like some of his fetishes that, that he had have stuck with me. And I come forward and talk about this because it needs to be told. People need to know that this weird stuff is happening and we have to stop it from happening again. And a lot of times there have been people I don't like to say pro-church, but I'll say pro-church, saying that, oh, that was a long time ago. That was 40 years ago when he did all that. Well, there's a case in 2018 of Father Foxhoven in Ohio impregnated a 16-year-old girl in 2018. Okay, that's last year. And I do Skype with Venezuela, Argentina, a lot of the South American countries, and they tell me that when they say anything, about a priest touching them inappropriately. They go under house arrest. They actually have to wear ankle bracelets, and if they're lucky, they won't get shot. And that's South America. And I've heard from um, Ireland, where Maskell has a few kids. We got Germany, Australia, France, all over. So as long as there's abuse going on, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about going into Father Maskell's office when I was 16 years old and asking him for help because I had a problem with my parents. There was a communication breakdown. I'll talk about that. And within the first 15 minutes of being in Father Maskell's office, the door was locked and he had me naked within 15 minutes. So it was like going from the frying pan into the fire. And a lot of times I've said uh, straight sex would have been a, a, a mercy, a blessing. But he had so many odd fetishes that the man was just all over the map. You mentioned before to me about Maskell's enema bag. Can you talk about that? Oh, yes. For some reason, Maskell had a, a, a fetish with orifices. He would like to lay me um, on the altar in the chapel at Keogh and press on my abdomen. He would say that he was going to be a doctor. He wanted to be a doctor, but he got a higher calling to be a priest. And he said, you can't feel that. You can't feel that. You're, you're full of crap. And he said, we're going to take care of that. So he'd take me into the bathroom, which was in his office at Keogh, and he'd administer enemas to me, and he'd pull his chair around and watch. And to this day, I have a lot of really weird bathroom problems and my husband can tell you that if I don't have a locking door on a bathroom I'm not using it I mean you know it that kind of stuff Teresa can I interrupt you yes please Donna <laughs> I'm sorry 
you know, I got the same, I have the same too. Like I have to be so completely private of going to the bathroom and know that door's locked and everything else. Because I, I don't know, it makes it easy when you say that he gave you an enema, but more like you were chased around and tackled, wasn't it? Oh, that was the suppository. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, yeah. The enema didn't work for some ungodly reason. Um, so he opened his desk drawer where he kept a lot of his weird play toys, and he pulled out. I didn't know what it was. It was a suppository. Again, I'm I'm naked except for my socks. I had my socks on. And Father Maskell literally chased me all around in his office, I was jumped over his desk, did did a roll, and ran into the corner, and he tackled me. He caught me, and he inserted the suppository, and laughed hysterically. Carried me into the bathroom and put me on the toilet and brought his chair around. Nothing happened because he inadvertently put it in my vagina, and he was pissed. I mean, he, I mean, this kind of stuff. I, I always worry that he, um, because you can put drugs in suppositories. I always worry that was a way for him to give drugs to people. That makes total sense because a lot of times I remember going in there. I remember getting him taking my clothes off and chasing me around and doing this stuff. But then... The next thing I'd remember is I was being driven to my parents' house by him in his car, and they thanked the good father for taking care of me, but I don't remember, like, from the first hour and a half, and I was in there for at least six hours, what happened. Uh, so the, the drugs could very well have been inserted that way. Well, they, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, they would... Um give suppositories in nursing homes to old people that was called Nottex, and it would help them sleep at night. And I, I, I'm sure we were all given so many different drugs to affect our nervous system. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree with that. Um, also, also the sodas. He always would, would, would yeah. give us a soda, and he'd let us smoke a cigarette which was merciful. I mean, anything but doing what he wanted to do was merciful. And um, uh, I know now that the sodas had to be drugged because I have lost time. I, I mean, there's, there's three hours, and, and a lot of times I lay at home trying to go to sleep and trying to remember how, how did I get dressed? Who, who put my clothes on? I remember it. Yeah. I remember my clothes never being buttoned like any way I would button them, you know, to go to school in the morning. I'd be so neat, and they were all be buttoned wrong, and I'd wonder, what happened? What happened to me? Yeah, it was a, it was a mystery. It was a mystery. But, see, the, the problem that was happening with my parents was a severe problem. It was uh, the Vietnam War was going on, 1968, and I was hanging around with hippies. And one day my mom smelled wine on me and asked to look through my purse, and she found some paraphernalia, and she also found an unused syringe. Now, the unused syringe was for a friend of mine that had gotten into heroin, and she had contracted hepatitis. I got that needle for her from another friend whose father was a doctor, and I tried to tell my parents that, but at 16, with a needle in your your purse, it, it didn't fly. I mean, they they were hysterical. Um, they could not be consoled. I had ruined the whole family. And when I went to school the next day in hysteria, I went to Father Maskell. I went to him because during open house at Keogh, they they the guard, the guide or whatever said, if you ever have a problem, there's the good Father Maskell here that will help any of the girls get through any problems they may have. So my good friend Linda walked me down to Father Maskell's office and I said, I need help. My, my parents found things and it's not what it seems. Could you please help me? 
he smiled and he led Linda out and locked the door and and then he started abusing me at that point. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was collateral damage. We know a lot of the abuse that you went to. Can you tell me about the collateral damage that you had to suffer? Yes. My daughters and I are very, very close. I, uh, they've, they've gotten me through a lot. And uh, just recently, my oldest daughter, Lisa, said, Mom, I want to talk to somebody. I want to talk to the news about this. I want to tell them what I went through as a kid. I want to, them to know that growing up with a mother that was sometimes not there, even though she was there, I didn't understand you. You weren't an easy person to talk to. You took care of us, but it was like uh, going through zombie motions. And she is collateral damage. She she suffered through her childhood, not understanding why mom's a little wacko every once in a while. We I raised them all pagan. My, my youngest daughter, as a matter of fact, my first mother-in-law forced me to take her to Sunday school. And she, at age five, said, Who's the dude on the cross? <laughs> I loved it. And, and, and the Sunday school teacher looked at me and I said, we're leaving now. She doesn't need to know who the dude is. And we, we left. But I always raised them to follow the golden rule. Do to others what you want done to you. But you do not need to go in those buildings they call churches because you don't need it. And when you're an adult, if you want to go worship a rock in the backyard, fine by me. If you want to go into those churches, go ahead. But I did not raise them in any faith. My daughter speaks out also. But I did, I I do believe in a universal God. And I would take my kids to church and not during a church service at first and then I would take I would always look for holy people one time I met um, Mother Teresa I took my kids to see and my daughter ended up joining a convent when they heard the keepers was coming out they told her they wanted her to go to Africa and my daughter um, they would pay her medical education. And my daughter said, no, I want to be a teacher. My daughter had to leave the convent because of the keepers. They were going to send her to a small town in Africa. And uh, I felt so bad, I can't tell you about that. You know, my daughter is continuing on. And she follows her goal of teaching theology and philosophy, which she is all in for following a true God, true church that takes care of people and not harm them the way the Catholic Church has. I, I, I deeply respect everyone's faith. I'm never here to, to bash anyone's religion. I, I deeply respect everyone, whatever your faith may be i say bury me with a physics book don't put a bible in there because i'm more into science and um i i just don't have any any belief when i was in elementary school at saint william of york i was a devout catholic i did the uh, first holy communion i was a model student i did the stations of the cross i visited church I wrote stories about the Bible for extra credit, and I believed, most importantly, I believed that, that the priest was God on earth because that's what we were taught back then. If you have a problem, you go to a priest because that's God on earth. And I, I, that's what I did when I was in trouble, and it just all went south, and I was never able to recover religion after that i never desired to either i i had a uh, first grade experience but i had been abused previously by my um natural father biological father and i went to i remember being in first grade and the um the sister was sister monica at saint agnes 
where I went to grade school at. And uh, Sister Monica started the class by saying, you have a perfect father and a perfect mother in heaven. Your earthly parents aren't always perfect. You know, that stuck with me my whole life and helped me get through different situations. You know, I, I'm thankful for Sister Monica. And after Maxwell, everything was destroyed by him and my well, faith. I, I even swallowed in, in the first and second grade where um, the nuns taught us about hell. The nun, some of them were very sadistic, said that uh, picture yourself burning for all eternity, forever and ever, like a piece of charcoal that's never going to burn out. You're going to burn there forever. And even your mom can't drop one single drop of water on your tongue to give you any relief. That's where you're going to go if you don't follow the rules of the church. And it wasn't just the... Um, the rules of, I don't know, the Ten Commandments. It was the church rules, the canon rules, like don't eat fish on Friday. Oh, my God, if I ate a fish, I mean, don't eat meat on Friday. If, if I ate meat on Friday, I just thought it was all over. I will add one quick thing that I really love is that I've noticed on Facebook, on the Archdiocese page, that a lot of people can comment what they want and they haven't been deleting it. And so one time there was a post about uh, not eating meat because of a certain reason. I'm not Catholic. I'm sure you all have heard that many times. And uh, uh, Gemma was brave enough to comment something about, oh, so we'll go to hell if we eat meat? Like, why, why is this a thing? And it's still there. They're, they're not deleting those things. I will say a quick thing also, uh, and I say this all the time. I promise someday I'll stop saying it. But I'm not Catholic never was Catholic, but this experience, it seems like it's a cult. I don't know if, like, I'm the only person that thinks that, but it truly does. I, I would have to agree for the reason that um, at St. William of York, religion was paramount. Uh, religion was uh, through interwoven between all of our subjects. I mean, we had other subjects, English, math, and what have you. All the time, the nun would end up bringing God in this, into it, and then we'd all have to um, kneel down on the wooden floor and say the rosary. And uh, back then, we didn't have air conditioning in those schools, by the way. Um, we wore wool outfits, and we had to kneel and say the rosary. And we would be taken to visits to the church whenever the nun felt like it. So some of the day, I would say... Uh, four hours would be for religion, and we might get an hour of math if we were lucky and a little bit of English. That's not right. Well, Teresa and I, when we're together, I know, um, like, altars really bother us, you know. Enough to put you in a post-traumatic state. You know, after you've been exposed to abuse on an altar, what can you say about religion? He has destroyed everything. When, I'm going to end on a happier note. I want to tell you why I'm so vocal, and it's for the reason you started this podcast. I want to give words that are unspoken to people so they can learn to speak out you know it it is so good and a free feeling to be able to speak out you know that's why i thank you for this opportunity Teresa, can i tell them the story of when we went to a graveyard in um near where you live oh yes go right ahead so Teresa and i uh we were looking for a grave and we were right by her house, and we drove to the um, church there, and we both start walking, and we both know that we've been there before. There are so many times when this happened, and it's one reason why I'm glad to live in Pennsylvania and not Maryland, that I know abuse has occurred there. It, that 
everything has been ruined. When you talk about collateral damage, driving down the street can be ruined. Yeah, and the, the, the Patapsco State Park, um, where Masco abused my friend Linda and me, where we were both raped by cops um, while he looked on. It's hard for me to enjoy the wilderness. I mean, I, I like being outdoors, but stuff like that crashes down into your memory. And, of course, my friend Linda, she passed away um, seven days after the Keepers aired. It was She took too many pills. But she never got over it. She never was able to get over it and get on with your life, her life. That's like I had a... My best friend was Elaine. Elaine had died early in her life from alcoholism, I believe. And it, it is, it is. How many people have lost their lives due to this, due to the church trying to save money? It's unbelievable to me. I'll speak of the money. That was a good point that you brought up. I have some figures that I want to talk about as well in just a moment, but I wanted to jump into uh, Maryland's law that's currently trying to be passed. And if anyone has seen Facebook anytime soon, you probably would see Teresa out there with her sign, which is where she normally is. I know that Maryland is trying to pass a law to eliminate the statute of limitations. Teresa, can you explain to us normal people who do not go inside courtrooms often what this means and what it could mean for survivors in Maryland. Yeah, the uh, the Doe Road case back in 95 lost on a technicality. It was ruled before the case even started that the statute of limitation stopped our right to sue, that we had three years from age of majority to sue for Father Maskell raping us course I was 40 years old when that case came through the church has lobbyists that keep the statute in check so that it's virtually impossible to have any victims of clergy abuse or or other abuse for that matter um, the coaches or what have you uh, sue because they limit the statute of limitations what we're trying to do here in Maryland and Many other states are doing the same thing and hopefully we'll all be successful is to eliminate the statute of limitation on pediatric child abuse because it is soul death. When a child, a young person, an innocent person is sexually abused, they they can't come forward. The average age for someone abused like that is 52 years old. Okay, Maryland made it seven years longer. We could sue. I think it's up to age 38 that that, that people could sue. And then they, they throw clauses in the lobbyists paid by the church, the church money, which people that go to church regularly put in a collection. It goes to paying these lobbyists to keep the statute the way it is. And they added a clause last uh, time 2017 that we would have to prove gross negligence in order to sue the entity responsible for the perverted priest which they enabled which the bishops and the cardinals enabled that we we couldn't sue we just couldn't sue because of um gross negligence is impossible goal to reach as an attorney in Maryland. It used to be ordinary negligence, okay? Say say I, I left the dog, the pit bull loose in the in the front yard and a kid got chewed up. That's negligence. That's ordinary negligence. And gross negligence, an example of how hard it is, there was a case where a paramedic pronounced the man dead and he went to the morgue. And they found out he was alive. Fortunately, they were able to bring him back. However, that mistake didn't rise to gross negligence in the state of Maryland. It didn't rise to that. So the lobbyists make damn sure they throw in these, these words that are impossible to, to overcome. What we want is a two-year open window where everyone who has been abused can come forward and have their day in court. Tell the judge, tell the jury, 
tell the lawyers on the other side what it was like to, to have been sodomized and, and raped vaginally, orally, you name it. Let them hear it and, and then let the jury decide what should be done. And the church sure isn't going to do it. The, the church needs to fire the cardinals, fire the bishops, hold them accountable, and put them in jail. If any of you went out and did this to a kid, you'd all be in jail, no question asked. But you put on the collar, you put on that collar, and it's magical. It'll keep you in money. It'll keep them in a nice retirement, sometimes over in the Vatican. But change is starting with the statute of limitations. We have to, we have to get rid of it. With this law coming up, coming up, will this be effective for both criminal and civil? Just a civil. Okay, just a civil. They they were getting confused, confusing at the Senate. I was at the Senate last Thursday, and uh, the um, speaker for the church was trying to say that people would be able to sue for medical malpractice indefinitely and stuff like that. This statute of limitation, which we're trying for, is a very narrow thing. It goes to the victims of child sexual abuse only, and it gives them their day in court where they can get the money they need to go to therapists. I work for SNAP. I have had people cry to me that the church was paying for a therapist um, every day they felt like they were going to hang themselves, and all of a sudden they get a letter from the churches, oh, no more money for therapy, you're done, we can't, we can't keep sending you. That's not right. The statute of limitations would allow a jury to say, okay, let's provide this person mental therapy for the rest of their life. This is with me. I am 64 years old. This has been with me since I was 16. Never left. Teresa, I look at, um, you know, the National Institute of Health and their remarkable work they've done for veterans on post-traumatic stress, and it applies to childhood sexual abuse. Why you don't remember your brain is protecting you for a while. While it takes 40s or 50s or 60s to become healthy enough to be able to handle things. You know, why, why, why can't the lobbyists look at this? Well, that, that was another legal point, was the repressed memory was not recognized in the 90s when my case came up. Um, but since then, I, I have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and disassociative personality problems. But back then in the 90s, the church people coined the phrase false memory syndrome. It's not even recognized in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders. The church made that up, false memory syndrome. And when they were saying my case, this repressed memory is impossible. It's not. It's been scientifically proven that the hippocampus, right, Donna? The hippocampus of the brain. And the amagata, which makes a fight or flight, whether you're going to lay there and you're so scared you'll act dead. That's definitely a reptile. Like, it comes from mammals. Reptiles do this. Of course. We were protecting ourselves, you know. People say, how, could, how come you didn't tell so-and-so? You couldn't even move or hardly breathe. I don't, you know, and there's all this medical explanation and genetics working that way, how it has changed our genetics this happened. And the church is just acting like we are hurting them. It's out there for the world to see. I think the medical community really has to start speaking up for us. Yes, yes, they have. And they, they're, they're doing it more and more, thank God. I also wanted to talk about the Pennsylvania uh, payout, which has been shared into the podcast discussion group, uh, mainly because I have spoken to many survivors, HEO survivors, and one of the disgusting things, so if you're not familiar, Pennsylvania, uh, their grand jury report, 
they released it, and one of the names that has come up is Bishop Adamex. They released his payout report. Of course, he's he's the bishop, and I thought it was very interesting, not only because these are people who are trying to defend themselves by saying, oh, that that wasn't a problem, but they have a payout based on what happened to you. So I'll read it to you really quickly. They have four different levels of abuse. The first level is above the clothing, genital fondling. And the range of payout that they would give you for that is $10,000 to $25,000. Second level is fondling under the clothes or masturbation, $15,000 to $40,000. The third is oral sex, $25,000 to $75,000. And the fourth is intercourse. 50,000 to 175,000. That is just, it's crazy to me that they would have a system like that. So, okay, this is, but that seems to be what they have for the Archdiocese of Baltimore from the conversations that I've had. They'll see what you went through and they'll give you a scale payout. But I've also noticed that the amount is much, 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 much less for uh, the, the Keo women who I've spoken to. Uh, for for this, you could get up to one hundred and seventy five thousand, which is not anywhere close to what any of uh, any of the Keo women have have gotten for for their for their their payout. But I also wanted to ask you if this statute of limitation passes in Maryland, which we all hope it does. Common sense tells you it should, just because I think that there should never be a limitation on something so 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 stupid. Um, if that passes. Will that prevent anyone who has gone through mediation from filing again? No. I have found a way around that. I um, got $40,000 from the Archdiocese in 2010, okay? After legal fees, I got about $28,000, which I divided amongst my grandchildren because I considered it blood money. I signed a release, okay? I will never sue you for anything related to this. My children won't sue you. That's against the law. First of all, you can't sign away your legal rights as a child. But I talked to Joanne Souter, who I work with, about how in the hell are you going to get around a lawyer signing a release and coming back for the second bite of the apple, as they call it. Well, because the release was based on fraud. And they played it down. I mean, I sat with these lawyers um, who, I don't know if they get a kick out of listening to it or not. And I had to tell them about uh, sodomy, enemas, um, Father Maskell uh, having um, a chalice, filling the chalice with semen and making me drink it. I mean, come on. Come on. What is wrong with this picture? We need a day in court i'll gladly stand up and tell the whole jury all kinds of stuff that that man made me do and i believe that i can get each person each keo person that signed that release out of it because i've already drafted a complaint i've already done a lot of research on this stuff and the conspiracy and the fraud is the big answer they they covered up my settlement was in 2010, before the Keogh girls were coming forward after the Keepers. And in 2010, um, my attorney, uh, Joanne, said that they, they hid from us. They played it down. They acted like Maskell maybe abused a, a couple people, and you're just one of them. And um, it's a lie. You prove that that priest abused more, and I guarantee you one pedophile isn't going to stop at one person. I guarantee Maskell's abused at least 100 people, at least. He started in a seminary in the 1950s. The church knew. They just kept, kept him going on through. They didn't care. So, yeah, there's a way around this. So don't lose faith. If, if we get that two-year window... I'm going to churn out the complaints, and we are going to nail them to the wall. And don't worry, super Catholic people. 
You're not going to go bank. You're not going to bankrupt the church. They have so much gold in the Vatican, and they own so much money that it's it's a misnomer for them to say, "Oh, you're going to bankrupt the church." The church needs to be stripped to the bottom and rebuilt. Because if there was a Christ, and I don't even know that there was, he didn't want his church run like this. He did not want it run like this. I want to lead in to some of the some of the things that I wanted to ask you, because of course this is now our third conversation. Yes, um, earlier in the podcast, we interviewed Dr. Richmond, who was also in the Keepers. She was one of the professors for Joseph Maskell when he was trying to obtain, when he did obtain his post-master uh, certificate for psychology, counseling, something like that. Um, Dr. Richmond told us in the episode that she believed that maybe one of the reasons, because of course you have to remember the other people taking that small course would have been people that she tells us that should have recognized Maskell being a predator. You know, so is he taking this course to make sure he can hide that? I couldn't tell you. But Dr. Richmond believed that maybe one of the reasons why he was so well equipped to hide it is because she believes he could have had what is now called disassociation disorder, which was more commonly known prior as multiple personalities. She said she called him good Joe. And sometimes he was bad Joe, evidently. In your experience with him, did you ever see any moments like that to where suddenly he wasn't a monster and then suddenly he it just flipped and then he was? Yes, yes, I I did see that. Um, there were times when um, Father Maskell would take me to his rectory after going to the gynecologist. And on the way to the rectory, he would buy me dinner and um, he would take me up to his room and he'd put on Irish music and he he dance and and we had dinner and he told me that he loved me he told me that i was very special and that he spent so much time with me because he cared he cared and there was times when i actually believed that 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 he did love me and i think now that was a way of just getting through it because he would be really nice. He would hug me, he would dance, and then it would happen. His face would change, and he'd say, okay, take him off, and then, and then the rape would occur. But I did see, I did see spots of gentle eyes. Not often, but they were there. So now what I'm going to do is allow, if any of you guys would ask questions, you can direct them towards Teresa, myself. If I can answer those questions, I will. I, I just thought of another question while you were talking. You talked about all the time you spent in his office. I went to Catholic high school, and if we missed a period, we had to justify it somehow with the office. How did you get away with, or how did he get away with, uh, not allowing you to go to class from one period to the next. My father asked him um, the question about me missing time at school, and he said, um, don't worry about that. I'll make sure she keeps up with her studies. That's we, we do part of the time in my office. I'll make sure she won't fall behind. The teachers didn't ask anything, not at all. Even though when one time I was called down to the nurse's office and I went down there and Maskell was waiting for me and he took me to his office. That nurse I found in 1995, she was aged at the time, um, told her son she knew what Maskell was doing, but she was scared to death. She was scared. And, and Sister Kathy, I believe, was going to help us. And look what happened to her. I mean, if I was a teacher in a school like that, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I ran the phone booths just to call the lawyers about it. This kind of stuff is, is scary. But as far as your question, um, I got, I graduated. I graduated no problem at all. Some classes I never went to. I, and I got an A. So, I don't know. 
I will also add that Gemma and I have discussed this before between ourselves, and we both have the same opinion that, so to back up just a little, I had interviewed Sean, who, another little side note, when we first started recording podcasts, Gemma would sometimes call me Sean on accident. (laughs) She does not do that any longer. She is very clear. Um, But after, it was after our interview with Sean, uh, he had sent me an email and and it was basically about how one of the problems in this in this narrative of survivors being abused by Masco at Keo is that especially so many is that Masco wasn't a part of the administration because Masco was the chaplain. Uh, the problem with this is is this belief that Jim and I both share from speaking to so many students, not just survivors but students. It seems like to us that Maskell had this persona and almost almost like he was bullying these women. And as one one survivor told me that I need to put my Catholic glasses on, these were nuns, and this was a, a priest. And one thing that I didn't realize and that I had no idea of is that evidently in the Catholic faith, especially in the late 60s, the nuns didn't really have any say. They weren't a part of the archdiocese. They were lower than the low. So so the survivor, I had asked her that question, and her response to me was, well, what were they going to say? This is supposed to be God. You know, if he tells you to do something, you're going to tell him no? In a time when, you know, even women didn't have full rights, let alone a nun talking to a priest, so that was my response to Sean. He didn't respond to me, weirdly enough. In answer, uh, Gemma and I were talking, and Gemma and I, we talk through these things. For example, Wednesday, we haven't shared with many people everything that we that we found out and stuff just because we need to process it first and to validate it before we share it because so many people listen to us. But that's that, that was my belief. Suddenly you have this nun telling him no and i don't think he liked that and i think that's what happened and uh you'll find out later in a couple weeks why why well more of why but i wonder too if maybe joyce did the same thing and maybe that's why she ended up dead and a lot of people give russ russell a hard time because she never spoke up but if you put yourself in russell's shoes you know suddenly kathy told him no and look what happened to her and Russell may not have feared that for herself, but he, they could have hurt her family. So, yeah, so, th- so that was, yeah, so th- that had never come up in a discussion before until Jim and I were recording that episode. Um, but that's, that's exactly how I see it. Suddenly a nun and a woman tells him no. So I don't think he liked that very much. My, um, back in the 90, 94, my attorneys told me that they had uncovered that uh, Father Maskell's mother made him vestments, priest vestments, and he would wear them, and he would get those little candies, I can't remember the name, couldn't remember the name, and he'd take out all the white ones, and he'd put them in a chalice, and he would say mass in, in, in his backyard, and other kids would come, and, and he took everything seriously. I mean, he, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. I'm sure he learned Latin. And, he, and, he gave, and his mother was like, I'm going to have a priest for a son. That was her dream. So she groomed him, and she ruined him. And sending him, I think, what was he, 13 when he went to the seminary? He was really young really young, and he cried, and he begged to come back. He got sent back home once, but they wouldn't take him. They sent him back to the seminary, where he started playing strip poker with um, 11-year-old kids, I know, because uh, Joanne uh, Suter actually uh, sued on behalf of some of the boys that uh, had to play strip poker with Maskell back in the seminary. Um, He started abusing then, and, and the church knew. They knew. They knew they were bringing a, 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 a nut, an insane psychopath into the church. Gemma and I recorded a timeline episode where we talk about Maskell's time. And so those, that, that question may be a little bit more answered in that episode when it comes up. Uh, but I will add 
something that you just said that I thought was very interesting. When he first went to seminary school, he was only there for, I think, 14 days, and then he got too homesick, so they, they sent him home. So I had to go back a second time. I will end it by reading this poem. Gemma let me borrow her, her yearbook from Keo. This is the 1970 version. And in it, they put a page for in memory of Sister Kathy Sesnick with her photo. And they put a poem. So I wanted to read it so everyone out there can hear it. Uh, So here we go. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down, one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day, Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. I'm a survivor. It took me 35 years to finally tell my mother. I couldn't tell my husband before I got married. I was too ashamed. It took me two years of therapy to get up the courage just to tell my own mother what he had done to me. But now I'm not ashamed and I'm not afraid anymore. I'm a survivor. I am 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 a survivor. Hi, I am a survivor. I am a survivor. Please take a moment to call these two Maryland senators and tell them I am asking the senator to vote to pass House Bill 687, the Hidden Predator Act of 2019. It will protect other Marylander youngsters from abuse by allowing abuse survivors legal avenues to justice. Mike Miller, Jr., 410-841-3700. And Robert A. Zirkin, 410-841-3131.